I love it when I hear a lot of noise of kids and uh, our little kids have an opportunity to go out to a children's church and I so much thank the Lord for those that are helping with that week after week. Something we're excited about is here in a few weeks, probably the first part of March, there's a new ministry to our five through sixth graders, five-year-olds through sixth graders on Sunday mornings with a children's church concept. We'll be announcing that here in the next couple of weeks, but that, that should be a lot of fun, a very good ministry and a good help. Helping them participate in church and learning what it's all about and actually doing that. May I just share a praise and a blessing that uh, came my way this week? I received a text from one parent who said, my child just came to me and said last night on their own after Awana, they trusted Christ as their Savior. They prayed and asked Jesus into their life to be their Savior, to confess their sin and to be asking Jesus to be their Savior. I said, yes. Then another parent texted, guess what? My child trusted Christ. And another one announced on Facebook, guess what? My child, on their own, called out to Jesus to be their Savior. I'm saying that's why we do what we do. And Awana is a work that God is using line upon line, precept upon precept, one thing after another, and it all adds up, and the Holy Spirit uses that, and they're able to respond. They did that on their own. Come on, folks, you're a Baptist church. You can say amen. <laughs> this is awesome. You can shout. Yes, clap it. Praise God. Look at that. He's at work in our midst. Amen. Lord, we do thank you that you do the work of salvation, and you give us a part in being able to make your name known. Lord, you've given us your word, this Bible, this book. It's truth, and we can count on it. And Lord, our children, we all need to see that life isn't about us. It's all about you, Christ. All of history, all of creation, it's all about you, Jesus, our Lord and our God. I pray that as we teach these truths again and again, that you would help many to come to Christ. And it's our response to the gospel that changes everything, our whole reason for living, our, our understanding of what life is all about, and our hope for eternity. And the most important question anyone that can ever have answered is, where will I spend eternity and how do I get to heaven? I pray that that answer would be very clear even as we speak from your word just now. And Lord, I pray that your love would motivate us and that, Lord, we would be a church of people who know well how to love you and how to love one another. And by this, our children, by this, our community, they're going to know that we're for real, that we love you, and that your love is real. Oh, God, I beg you that we would love well. We would be alert to each other's needs. We would listen. We'd pray for one another. We'd care for one another. We would... We'd be there for one another. Lord, so often life gets busy and we just chug out responsibilities and we don't really stop to look at who's around us. And God, you've given us a church family to care. 
And Lord, it's through your Holy Spirit working through us that you show your care and we can cast all our care on you knowing that you care for us. May you use this church to help that reality be known, especially for our children. Oh, there are so many pressures and painful things in this world that pull kids away from you. So many temptations, so many false lies of the devil. Oh God, may the love of Christ shine in this place. And may you use your word even now as we open it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Isaiah, all right? And our text is Isaiah chapter 5 and 6. We'll just do the first part of chapter 6. But you can't address chapter 6 without understanding chapter 5. And actually the five chapters that precede chapter 6. And there's, there's a word in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 7 that just jumped off the page at me. Have you ever had that happen? We're like, oh, that's what it's all about. And that word is the word atoned. Is that a word that's important to you? When Isaiah used that word here, this is the picture of what he had in mind. A lamb that had been slaughtered and the blood was pouring out. There's a reason why he understood that picture, because so many things throughout the Old Testament and the instructions that God gave his people revolved around this day of atonement that was pictured through the death of a lamb. But they understood that there was something missing, that just a lamb dying wasn't going to solve their sin problem. There had to be a bigger answer. And when we see this word in verse 7, where he says, your sins are atoned for, that caught his attention. That's what the whole book is about. That's what the whole Bible is about, that God would do something for us that we could not do for ourselves in bringing atonement before a holy God. That word atone may not mean much to you yet. I know it did to Isaiah, and I think it will mean much to you and to me by the time we finish today. Our text here in Isaiah chapter 5 all the way to chapter 6 verse 7 will show us that the picture of the vineyard in Isaiah 5 illustrates the problems caused by our sin, the last part of Isaiah chapter 5, highlighting our need for a holy God who can purify us, Isaiah chapter 6. So that's our outline. Somebody would say, so what are you going to preach today? The picture of the vineyard illustrates the problems caused by our sins, highlighting our need for a holy God who can and will, and he promises to purify us all the way through. The picture of the vineyard illustrates... It's a picture. It's an illustration. An old saying goes, a picture is worth what? A thousand words. Yet, I find that a word picture can be worth 10,000 words. A picture made with words. Some people love numbers. Other people love building blocks and various things we can do with our hands. I love words. There's so much that can be comprehended 
through putting words together just right. And here in Isaiah 5, we have a word picture that I think is worth 10,000 words. It's a picture of a vineyard. You'll see in your Bible there may be a highlight or a title, The Vineyard of the Lord Destroyed. And this word picture is actually a song. Some songs paint a picture, and it tells a story, right? Well, this song is a sad song. I guess country music isn't the only music genre to have sad songs. It's in the Bible. It's a song about a well-beloved one. Who is this well-beloved one? who builds a vineyard. And notice what happens. So much hard work went into building this vineyard. You see in verse 2, and um, he dug it and cleared out the stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in its midst and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Why did it yield wild grapes? And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? I've done so much for you. I've invested in you. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? We'll find out. Now, what should the beloved do to this vineyard that's yielding wild grapes? We'll look at verse 5. Tear it down. Make it a waste. Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. And I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be pruned and hewed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Chapter 5 of Isaiah here concludes the preface or the beginning, the introduction to the book of Isaiah. Remember back a month ago when we started this, in Isaiah chapter 1, there was an introduction to the judgment that was coming. Now, in the midst of that, there was hope of some, some work of God for our cleansing, but there was a judgment that was coming. And remember, the Holy One of Israel, which we'll address, the Holy One of Israel will do this. And then you have a series of judgments that are expressed and, and, and talked through in chapter 2, 3, and 4. We come here to chapter 5, and we see this judgment on this vineyard. The Holy One of Israel, the name of God, the Holy One of Israel will do this. And verse 7 explains the story that we just read, this illustration, this picture. Verse 7 tells us exactly who this vineyard is. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and his pleasant plant. God loved his vineyard. And he looked for justice, but instead found bloodshed. There's a, there's a, there's a play on words in this language in the Old Testament here that just makes it very obvious to the people that are reading it. But you can see the contrast. God was looking for one thing. Something much worse showed up. He was looking for justice, but there was bloodshed. He was looking for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Have you ever heard of something that is described as so bad that it just calls for an outcry? Nobody should put up with it being that bad. 
And that's what happened. God had invested in his people, and yet his people produce sour, awful-tasting, wild fruit. And the judgment came from the vineyard owner, who was none other than God himself. And what is this judgment described as? Woe. Woe to the wicked. The problems caused by our sin. The picture of the vineyard illustrates vividly the problems caused by our sin. Sin has consequence. It's not just whatever, do whatever you want, if it makes you feel good. Sin always has a consequence. Be sure your sin will find you out. There's a way that makes sense to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The problems caused by our sin. And I think it's summarized in that one little word, woe, and it occurs again and again throughout this chapter. We've seen it here in verse 7, again in verse 8. Look down at verse 11, 18, 20, 21, and 22. Again, this, this, this word that is expressed here, woe, it's, called, it's like the picture of doom. It's like you see the tsunami coming and you're running for your life and you, there's no escape. You know you're going to be consigned to judgment, to this curse, to this doom. And this chapter concerns the woes that are due upon this worthless vineyard. It's doomed. The consequences of our sin is doomed. The wages of sin is death. That's the truth. The Bible is truth, and we can count on this. And judgment for sin is often more sin. Can I say that again? And listen to that. The way judgment shows up on our sin as we get further into sin. Judgment for sin takes you further into sin. These to whom God's judgment is coming are to those whose God's goodness had been granted. And we'll see that things go from bad to worse, from one sin to another sin to another sin, and it's like this is an outcry. First, we see in verses 8 through 10, they're possessed by materialism. There's a, there's a, there's got to have more. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field unto the, until there is no more room and you make, you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. They want more, and more is never a, enough. And there's this greed that shows up in verses 9 and 10, leading to this bankruptcy, this famine, a gallon of wine for an entire acre. That's all they can get. Only a 10% increase from the seed that is planted. You can't make it on that. You're headed for bankruptcy. This is the result of greedy materialism. Things don't satisfy. The more you have, the more headaches you have. Materialism is a woe. Second, look at verse 11. 
There's a drunkenness in pleasure. Woe to those who rise in the morning. That's not a problem to rise early in the morning, but you see what happens here. That they may run after strong drink. And it's not necessarily the drink that the issue is here. Who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. This being consumed with materialism leads them to an all-consuming entertainment mode. They're always at a party. They're drunk on pleasure. Indulgence. Always wanting to have fun. It's all about the pleasure. What are you drunk on? So many of these things are good things. Yet, you see in verse 12, they did not regard the Lord. It came that all they wanted is what they wanted rather than considering what God wanted. May I encourage you to invest in this truth within your family, within your heart, within your children, that you always make it your aim to please Jesus. Whether at home or away, make it your aim to please Jesus. Not pleasing self, because that will never satisfy. Long to please the Lord. But here, as one author describes it, in America we are amusing ourselves to death. We're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And this results in verse 13, a lack of knowledge. You might say this is stupidity shows up. Sinners do stupid things. In verse 17, the vineyard just simply disappears. There's just a sparse pasture land left for the nomads wandering through. Next, after this indulgence, this materialism and indulgence, there's a defiance that sets in. Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with with cart ropes. They're just pulling it along. They won't let it go. Who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. There's a defiant sinfulness, almost like there's a shaking the fist at God, saying, go ahead, bring it on. Who cares? Defiance. Verse 20, they call evil good and good evil. Do we know anything about that? Do we see that happening? Verse 21, they're wise in their own eyes, arrogant in their humanism. Where man makes himself the measure of his own morality. We justify our sinful ways. It's twisted. It's backwards in this defiance against God. And finally, in verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprave the innocent of his right. There's a corruption. Your leaders, your heroes, your influencers are drunk and they're taking bribes, and they're having no integrity, and they've abandoned righteousness and judgment. A day dominated by, dominated by corrupt leadership. 
Materialism, self-indulgence, defiance against God, and corruption. You see any of those in our culture today? It's all over. One thing leading to worse, leading to worse, and, and from the top down, there's corruption. Read verses 24 through 30. Look at these verses. These verses start with the word, therefore. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. There is a therefore. Look at verse 25. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled. It's burning against his people. And he stretched out his hand. You don't want to go up against the hand of God. They stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked. And the corpses were as refuse in the middle in the midst of the sea. A stretched hand out hand against God, and there's this earthquake. I think there's a clear reference to Amos chapter 1, verse 1, and Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, that speak of the tribulation period. Old Testament referencing what we will see unfold in the book of Revelation. It's a very dark day. Verse 30. Behold darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. The judgment of God. Here's a question for you. If God destroyed Israel, His covenant people, for these kinds of sins, and we see these same things present in our day, What should God do? Someone has said, if God doesn't deal with America soon, he's going to have to apologize to Israel for all the judgment he passed upon them. Ponder that. Notice back in verse 16, this holy God showing himself holy. In the midst of all of this, progression downward, this digression of sinfulness. In the midst of all of this, even though they're mocking it, a holy God shows himself as holy. Wow. The conviction of the reality of a holy God, in spite of a world that's wanting to ignore him, the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. We need to see God more than ever today. We need a revival of who God really is and that reality rather than us painting our own false reality. So that brings us to the highlighting of the need for a holy God who can purify us. The picture of the vineyard illustrates the problems caused by our sins, the rest of Isaiah 5, highlighting our need for a holy God Isaiah 6, 
who can and will purify us. Here we see a second picture. The first picture was of this vineyard. But here the picture is a vision. It's the vision of the rest of the story. This statement was made in 740 B.C. It's in a time when 2 Chronicles 26 is unfolding and Isaiah has this vision after the king had died. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Can you say that? I saw the Lord. When you open this book, God speaks to you. You see the Lord. We have His written Word, and through His Word, we see the Word who has always been. I saw the Lord. A vision is a supernatural ability to see the supernatural realm. There is more to life than the physical. I don't understand all that, but I know there's more than right here. There's something that's forever, and we are made in the image of God, and we will live somewhere forever. And I need to know my God who will help me in that time. And what do we see here? God, the Lord, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe, His glory filling the temple. And what is this telling us? Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This God, who they see on the throne, is still on the throne. No one has ever removed him or ever will. And this God who is on the throne is going to do something. The train of his robe described here. Literally, in that language, what that's picturing is just the hem of his garment. That robe, that little section around the very bottom of the garment that is just at the floor level, this trim, this train is what's described, this hem of this garment is completely engulfing the whole place that he's in, this robe. Just the lower edge, the, the hem filled the room. And there are these seraphim, plural, of an angel, the seraph, literally meaning the burning ones. They're so bright, they're burning. Now, there are many different descriptions of angels why wouldn't there be? God is a God who describes all kinds of variety in His creation. Many different forms. In this case, these angels have six wings covering their lips, covering their feet, and they fly. And they're calling out, they're singing out, they're crying out with conviction, holy, holy, holy. And when you see something repeated in the Scripture, it's for emphasis. Normally you hear it twice, amen and amen. We need to pay attention to this. But holy, holy, holy is thrice over emphasized. This is a big deal. We need to see this one who is so different than us. 
God is in an entirely different category. There is no comparison. He is set apart, and we think we're so much. We're nothing compared to this holy, holy, holy God. And His glory is everywhere. Wow. The building shook at the voice. Smoke was everywhere. Just get a glimpse of that. The presence of the glory of God. Earlier in Exodus, when this was revealed to the children of Israel, this Shekinah glory, they just fell down. They thought they were going to die. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, and His glory was everywhere. You couldn't miss it. This is what it was all about. We think we're what it's all about. We think what we want is what's going to satisfy. And there's so much more that we need to see. The presence of the glory, the majesty, this longed-for God. Now, what would you do if you saw a vision like this? Isaiah's response, verse 5. Woe is me. There's that word woe again. I'm doomed. I, there, there's, uh-oh, oh, what's going to happen? Woe is the, me. This is his confession. Woe is me. He's, in, he's, he's doomed. There's personal ruin coming his way because he knows of his sin. <clears throat> Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. He was horrified by his own sin. How would you respond to this vision of God? Isaiah was horrified by his sin. Now, I know we've been going at it real hard. We covered all of chapter 5. We're hitting this very intense part of Isaiah chapter 6. This has been hard hitting here. But maybe just take a break, catch your breath here with a story. It's said that there are 6,000 cats in Manhattan. No, I said 6,600,000 6, cats in Manhattan. Um, there are a lot of rats. There are a lot. Of, there are a lot of mice, and so they, they. And everybody wants a cat, I guess. All up and down these high rises, six hundred thousand cats. Some say it's up to a million. Who would want that many cats? Who would want any cat? Okay. Yeah, I hear some booze going on there with that. All right. All right. But there's a problem here. Cats die. That's a problem. Where do you bury them in a city? I mean, there's no place to dig. I mean, everything's concrete, and you don't go into the park, and, you know, where do you bury a dead cat? It's a problem. Well, the story goes, it's a story. The story goes that the city came up with a plan. For $100, the city would send in a worker to come take the cat away and go dispose of the cat. For $100, they'd show up and remo- remove the dead cat. One lady had a great idea. Instead of paying $100, she offered a service for $50. She would come and remove their cat. So they'd call and, or they'd text, and she'd say, okay, I'll be there. And before she'd go by there, she would stop at the thrift store and buy a used suitcase. Yeah. Then she'd show up at 
several of these appointments to pick up the cat and then put it in the suitcase and go to the next one, pick up the dead cat and put it in the suitcase. And after a number of these visits along the way, she gets on the subway and she sits next to the door and she puts the suitcase right next to the door on the subway. And the door would open, the door would close. The door would open, the door would close. The door would open and an Invariably, some guy would grab that suitcase and take off running. (laughs) Can you imagine the look of horror within his eye when he opens the suitcase to discover what's there? A bunch of dead carcasses and maggots. And what a mess. Ah! He's horrified. He's not going to go on keeping that suitcase around, will he? He's going to get rid of it. You would think he would be an idiot to say, oh, I've got a suitcase full of dead cats and all the maggots, and let me show you how much fun I and carry it around with you everywhere you go. Wouldn't that be crazy? But that's what we do with our sin. We hang on to it. We keep going back. We should be horrified. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we desperately need the grace of God to stop sinning, and he gives us that grace that's more sufficient than ever. But we think we're okay in our sin. Chapter 5 of Isaiah, no. It gets worse and worse and worse, and the reality is there is the vision of a holy God who sees that sin, and he must judge that sin. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. What are your worst sins? For Isaiah, what came to mind were his lips, how he spoke. He was under conviction for the words that came out of his mouth. Oh, yes, I understand that. What is your worst sin that comes to your mind when you know a holy God sees you? Thou, God, seest me. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, beholding the evil and the good. What does God see? What's your worst? And the beauty of this passage is your worst. God cleanses that. Look at verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. So something was on the altar that had to die. And he touched me, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your sinful lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You may be feeling guilt and shame and unworthiness for your lust, for your anger, for your manipulation, for your gossip, for your worldliness, for your passions. You know God sees that. He's a holy God who must judge sin. But our God can and will atone. 
The Lord provides, verse 6, cleansing. And I'm asking the question, how? Notice this. It's all of God. Isaiah does nothing for his cleansing. It's something that God brings to him. God takes what was on the altar and brings it and touches him. He uses his angel, his messenger, to help him see the reality of his cleansing. Isaiah does nothing. But God gives forgiveness through atonement. Your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned. God himself would provide a sacrifice on that altar to take upon himself the fiery wrath of God upon himself so that we can be cleansed, taken away. So in the culture of Israel, understanding the Day of Atonement, there were two lambs, two rams. One was the scapegoat, where the picture was that goat would be covered with all the sins of the people and it was chased away sent over the cliff never to be found again never to come up again removed your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west they're they're buried in the deepest part of the ocean never to be able to be retrieved they're taken away that was the picture of the scapegoat And there was a second lamb or ram that was brought to the altar and its throat slit and the blood covered the altar. And God promised, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the children of Israel knew that God had an answer for that that was more than just a simple lamb. But they did that because that's what God told them to do. And Isaiah here is seeing that God is saying that he himself would do what we could not do and provide for our atonement. God covering us. That word atonement means to to smear over or to cover over so that what's there cannot be brought up again. Taken away and forgiven. Atoned. And the answer is, how? Through the blood of the Messiah, the promised one. Here in a moment, we'll have a time of communion. And the whole Bible is summarized with the work of Jesus Christ. It's all pointed to what Jesus Christ did. Here Isaiah is looking forward to what the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would do. He would atone for our sins. Jesus went to the cross, died there, paid the penalty of our sin, shed his blood. He bore God's wrath. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God took our place so that we could be given the gift of his righteousness and cleansing and rightful heirs as children of God. I was just reading through Isaiah 53 earlier this week. Can you look to Isaiah 53? And we'll prepare for communion here in just a moment. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what has, he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is brought before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he has done no violence and there is no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Jehovah, the Lord, to crush him, his son. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for our guilt, for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, he will rise again, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. God looks upon the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God. And he says, I'm satisfied. The atonement takes care of your need for cleansing. So what was Isaiah's response? We'll cover that next time we gather around the word for Sunday of the month for communion. Pastor Jordan will be addressing this response to a holy God giving us this cleansing. Hear my Lord, send me. When you know what God's done for you, when you realize the love of God, how it's shown to you, when he does all that for you, you want to do all you can for him, and you want to serve the Lord with gladness. Would you thank the Lord for the cleansing that he brings? If you've not been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, I would invite you to open your heart and to say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I see it. And woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, or whatever it is that sin that you know is there. And there are many. And you can come to him knowing that he will offer you his cleansing from the altar, the blood of the Lamb being your salvation. I would invite you to respond to the gospel. Christian, we have a moment here in just a moment. We're going to do what Jesus said to do this in remembrance of him, to be saying, thank you, Jesus. And we're going to have our time around the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, where we partake of a picture of this sacrifice that Jesus did to provide us, to provide us his atonement, this satisfaction, this covering so our sin would be taken away. It's something Christians do. If you're not a Christian, don't feel compelled to participate. But watch and try to comprehend what this is. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you do this, may this draw out from you the same response that Isaiah had, being in awe of a holy God who would love you like that so that you could be with him and you can live for him. And you can say, here, my Lord, send me. I'm going to ask that Jan would come to the organ and just play through holy, holy, holy. If you will bow your 
head before the Lord and pray. We'll ask that the deacons would come and prepare for our time of communion. And we'll be able to say, God, thank you for your atonement you provide.